And good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Deering Live. It's Thursday. And I think probably the best news I've had all week is that Mr. Dave Bandrowski is back on UK soil, uh, US soil, I should say, not UK soil. My goodness, where was I for a second? In US soil. Welcome home, Dave. How are you doing? Very good. Good to be here. Good to be back. Good to be here. Let's talk about our guest. He's ready. He's waiting. He's sitting there. He's been patient and he's been fantastic already. We are so excited uh, to welcome our friend today, bluegrass legend, Mr. Greg Cahill, to Daring Live. Uh, after founding the Special Consensus in 1975, which incidentally, of course, is the same year that uh, Deering Banjo Company was founded, uh, Greg has blazed a trail of banjo playing for over 45 years. We have a ton to talk about today, so let's get straight into it. Please welcome the man himself, Mr. Greg Cahill. Greg, how are you? I am so good. And so uh, honored to be here. This is such a wonderful series that you guys have been doing. And uh, you've had some just the, the, the best players in the world. So I'm just uh, happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. There's no other reason that you're on the list, sir. This is, this is why you're here. You're, you're, you're welcome and we're honored to have you and uh, honored to be in your presence. So like I say, we've got a ton of stuff. But uh, as is always the case at Daring Live, uh, we would love to kick off uh, things with a little bit of tune. Um, and uh, lead us in. Would you mind? I would love to play a tune, and uh, I just happen to have this uh, Julia Bell banjo here. That's me. <laughs> and, uh, I absolutely love. I in the studio for our last recording, this, uh, two recordings ago. I borrowed Allison Brown's, and it was just yep. I had to buy one. And here we go. So I'm just gonna play. A, I'll just play a little something. Awesome. Go ahead. Thank you. 
All right. Great to have you here. You sound great. Oh, thanks. I'm, uh, I'm, in, love this, I'm in love with this banjo That's uh, that I can tune it down to D like that and get such a rich tone. It's wonderful. <laughs> Is it, do you usually tune it down? Uh, do you usually tune it down to D, or do you tune it to E? You know, I, I've done. Uh, that's one of the things um, that people have been at on our on our newest recording, which came out in COVID March of last year. Uh, we uh, I, I played it on three different songs on that uh, recording, and on one I played in D, and on one I played in E minor, and on one I played in E. So it's very versatile, you know, and I've, I've tuned it. I mean, I just tune it all over the place. It's great. Fantastic. And and you got, we made that with Allison Brown. Is that who uh, showed you that model first? She did. She has it. Uh, she keeps it right there in the studio, you know, and uh, we record for Compass and we're in their yeah. studio. And on uh, one of the songs called Way Down the River Road on our Rivers and Roads recording, um, we we're just trying to find, it's really fast but we were trying to find some some way to make it be uh, special you know something different and uh so she uh, as i was walking into the booth says wait a second hey what why don't you try this went, okay so uh i did and we messed around with different tunings with that and ended up playing i tuned it sort of in b it was like if you were in b but in d tuning uh-huh. um, and uh and boy, and we got so much feedback about the sound of that. On, on the what record. was the tuning on that, though? It was cool. so it's like that was so uh, it's like E tuning, but tuned down threes. Yeah, it was like uh, B and F sharp, D sharp, B, F sharp was a fifth string. Gotcha. Um, and uh, that was one of the questions somebody asked me actually before they sent me an email. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, it's 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 great. Glad you're playing it. Um, glad to see, you know, glad to hear it being played. Yeah. Why don't we dig into some of the history of, of you as a banjo player and then some of the history of, of uh, you know, the band that you, you, you helped found uh, Special Consensus. But starting out, how did you first get, in, you know, interested in playing the banjo? Well, um, actually, when I was uh, growing up, our family was was pretty musical. Uh, my mom was a great uh, kind of honky-tonk uh, stride piano player. She played all the old standards as well. And um, and uh, my mom and dad loved Dixieland music, so I would oftentimes be going to sleep hearing Eddie Peabody on the, on the stereo. Um, and I think that's really what put the sound of the banjo into my ears. And uh, I played other instruments, you know, I, 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 I'm from the south side of Chicago, so I played the accordion for about eight years. That was my first, well, I learned how to play the harmonica from my grandfather when I was just a little guy, and then the accordion. And uh, then I went away, and, and at the end of high school, um, one of my friends showed up with a banjo and was playing. That was the, that's a long time ago, about 100 years ago, but that was the Kingston Trio era. And, uh he showed up with uh, the five string and playing the Dave Guard stuff, and I just thought that was so cool. And uh, so when I went away to college, I, I ended up uh, finding basically all the Pete Seeger stuff and got my long neck Vega, and that was my uh, first real band. At first, I had a Sears Silvertone banjo. That was actually my first five string. And then I got a long neck Vega and listened to... Kingston Trio got into Pete Seeger, got the 12-string guitar and the 6-string guitar and what have you. But uh, And then I heard Earl Scruggs play, and I, 
I was, uh, I was like, wow, how many people are playing that banjo? Man, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, that was it. That was the bug that uh, has never left me. It's amazing how many people the Kingston Trio um, inspired to to pick up the banjo. Greg Deering, our founder, you know, I think you probably you might know is a. Oh yeah was inspired you know directly from the kingston trio i know yeah. tony trishka was too he was in that same uh that same era and we're all within a couple of years in age you know so i think that was right. the, that was the the format the back then <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. yeah so it was great though uh and uh it was uh i couldn't put it down once i started trying to figure out how to play it, you know, and I, there weren't a lot of banjo players in Chicago. Um, but there was one guy named Richard Hood and he showed me some things and, uh, I found the Scruggs book and then, uh, then started going to some of the festivals. There weren't any around here back then, but, uh, boy. And I, uh, I was the, the nerdy guy when, when JD Crow would get off the stage, I'd be the guy waiting for him, you know, JD, <laughs> You 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 played a different solo, or at least a different D lick in that old or in the in the in Blue Ridge Cabin Home. That's it. And he'd be like, "Oh, he was so good." <laughs> he just, Give me the banjo here. Maybe I don't know. Was it this? <laughs> right, right, right. But uh, he was just great, and uh, that was it. Were there so festivals in the area, like outside of the city, when you get into more rural areas at that time? No, no, that was in, I think it was Livonia, Georgia, was the first oh, okay. one. Wow. And then I, I used to go to Georgia and Ohio, those, and Indiana, of course, Bean Blossom yeah. was there. Yeah. Um, but eventually then, uh, downstate Illinois started having uh, festivals and uh, had some pretty good ones, actually. Delbert Spray and Irma Spray, they had some and had one. and uh, it, uh, But it didn't, uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, the way I started, I found people to play with was at the University of Chicago Folk Festival, um, which they have every year. And it's usually like in late January or early February. And uh, their whole thing is to have like the real deal, you know. So I saw Olabel Reed there and I saw the Pinnacle Boys there. And uh, um, they had had the Stanley Brothers, but I that was before I started going to the folk festival i think it's probably 50 years old now as a matter of fact something like that 55 but um no more than that even and uh so we'd go and listen to some of the bands and they'd have the great the old blues guys and and women and 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 bluegrass and folk you know and uh we'd go out in the hall and start playing music and that's that's how i met the guys that uh, we formed the band with we'd be out there in the hallways playing and uh then it was like, you know, hey, I have an apartment not far from here. Why don't you come over on Saturday and we'll just play? And then it was, how about Tuesday and then Saturday? And then, you know, how about playing for our friend's party? And stuff just started snowballing. So, And how'd you, how'd you start? Because it sounds like there wasn't really much of a bluegrass scene at the time there. So how'd you start to get gigs when, you know, at the time, I don't, I, I don't know. I, was, it was still it was a heavy Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were two bands that played pretty regularly. One was called the Greater Chicago Bluegrass Band, and the other one, oh my God, um, it was uh, they had the name like a Stanley Brothers song. Oh, I'm, I'm 
I'm remiss not remembering that. But uh, and so they played some of the clubs, and we would go hear them. Um, and then eventually, um, there's a street, a strip called Lincoln Avenue here in Chicago, right north of Fullerton, and you could park your car there and walk not even a mile, and just about every other door on one side of the street and then every few doors on the other side it was a different club so you could you could go hear blues and you could hear bluegrass and you could hear folk and you could hear uh, rock and roll and uh, just every kind of music it was so wonderful and uh, it didn't what happened is that was before they had a lot of uh, clubs in the suburbs so people would drive in from the suburbs and pack the places out and uh um, Steve Goodman, of course, lived here, and he was around then. And with the Holstein brothers, Steve started a place with them. It was called Somebody Else's Troubles. And uh, then there was a club called Holstein's, and those were the two main ones that brought in the bluegrass bands, the touring bands. And then, of course, the Old Town School of Folk Music started bringing in uh, all the all the first-generation bands, like pretty much every year. Bill Monroe would play here, and Jim and Jesse and the Osborne brothers, and... Jimmy Martin, and it wasn't that big a space. It was before they had the, the bigger buildings that they have now. Um, so it was quite a thing. I even saw Ernest Tubb in a, in a small room that probably seats 250 people at the most. So uh, it, was, uh, it was a vibrant scene. But then as the uh, suburbs started opening up more clubs, this was in the late 70s, 80s, maybe early 80s uh, and mid-80s, um, you know, people would stay in the suburbs. And so the tenants sort of trailed off, but the club owners, the owners of the buildings on those Lincoln Avenue pubs had raised the rent gradually so much because that money was pouring in, and then they people couldn't afford it anymore. The, so one by one, a lot of those clubs went away. There's still a few of them there, um, but it's nothing like it was back back in the day, you know. There's still, it seems that there is, you know, there's some pretty heavy people coming out of Chicago in the bluegrass world, such as, you know, your band, Noam Bacalny, uh, you know, in the, in the Chicago area. Uh, Don Sternberg is from there. Yep, yep. Um, he and I still play some duo shows, and he was a special seaboy briefly, you know, for a little while when he could fit it in between his jazz gigs. Um, yeah, uh, Robbie Folks. Robbie Folks was... Uh, in the band for he just moved from Chicago. He's been here a long time, actually. He just moved to LA about a year and a half ago. Um, so uh, yeah, there are some some great players have come through. That's for sure. Yeah, and then and then you're really lucky to you've you've worked with the Old Town School of Folk Music, which is for a long time, um, correct? For since, yeah. since over forty years, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's probably. It's scary. It's yeah. It's not fifty yet. <laughs> but I yeah, I started teaching there back in the late seventies, um, and um, I still teach there one day a month. I have some private students one day a month. But I had to you know back. I started the bluegrass program there. Oh God, that's at least ten or fifteen years ago, at least. And uh, there are a lot of special C alums who were from Chicago and or who moved to Chicago to be in the band, and they still live there, and they teach at the Old Town School. Um, so they keep the, the program alive and well. 
Um, and uh, we have our every five years we have a reunion show uh, and uh, kind of a just a, a fun an anniversary show we call it anniversary. But as many people who can make it because a lot of the people who used to be in the band have their own bands and still tour. But as many people as can make it come in, and then we play a few songs from each of the band recordings with the people who were on the recording. Um, so it's a great way to stay connected and to keep it going. Now, now last year was the 45th year for the band, and of course that got canceled. Uh, um, so we rescheduled it for this year, October 9th actually, and it's called the 45 plus one uh, anniversary <laughs> show because we have so many t-shirts <laughs> with the 45 you know and the logo and all that and thought you know we're it's still going to be the 45th anniversary so um that's it's amazing the longevity you've had with with the band is there any uh what can you attribute it to what do you you know recommend for other other band leaders to keep a band going you know for, for you know so long well i think uh I don't know. It's probably some people would say perseverance. Other people would say stubbornness, you know, it's just like, <laughs> um, and then, you know, there were times when I was like, Oh boy, I don't know if we can keep doing this because, uh, you know, slept on a lot of people. We couldn't have done it without the, the, the wonderful fans of bluegrass music. You know, we've slept on, people's floors and people have had us to dinner and just so the, when the vehicle would break down they help us fix it or help us pay to get it fixed uh, I mean we could have never done it without the support of, of the the people who would uh, come out to see us and I'll be forever grateful for that and um, yeah and I think I just can't imagine doing anything else you know and uh, I still pick up the banjo and play try to play every day well when we're touring it's it's not quite as easy to do that except for playing on stage but mm -hmm. it's uh, you know i think as you know i'm sure it's it's an addictive instrument that's for sure and uh, and the music uh, i've been so lucky to have really really good people come through the band good people as well as good musicians you know and uh, that makes a difference too i think when you when you're choosing people to to join the band, it's not all about uh, musicianship. That, of course, is a huge part of it. But I think uh, I think just who the people are, the character, and what have you, makes a big difference too. So, yeah, I mean, you're you're a family when you're a band. You know, you're you know you're you're, you're together for for better or worse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a exactly. lot of time, and so you have to you have to get along. Yeah. It's, uh, you probably, I mean, there is a, for quite, quite a few years, I mean, I was seeing the people in the band more than I was seeing my, my wife, you know, um, mm -hmm. and my son when he was growing up. But, uh, it's, uh, now the good thing, you know, and people would move to Chicago to be in the band because we couldn't afford to have people commuting from other states or even other cities. So until about, probably the mid-90s people would, would come and move to Chicago to be in the band and then you just after a while it was hard to find you know some people didn't want to move mm -hmm. and uh, and you run through the list of that was like 15 or 20 years of running through the list of musicians around here and after a while you know it's not for everybody you know a lot of people would 
come in for a couple years, three years, four years, and, and other people uh, stayed longer. Um, it just It's just how the flow goes, you know? Yeah, so, so speaking with Ryan Kavanaugh a little bit about you before uh, the uh, interview, and, uh, you know, he, he mentioned, he said, you know, you're a fantastic player. He thought he's a huge fan and, uh, and you know, but just a great guy, but also a road dog. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we've had that conversation, like, what are you doing? <laughs> but, uh, and, and talk about a phenomenal, phenomenal player, phenomenally gifted person and he's just a great there's a perfect example of a just a good human being who also has all this talent and uh, and has developed it you know i mean he's he's just a great player uh, yeah yeah are you looking forward to getting back out on the road and are yeah, you booking are you starting to book things yeah all of a sudden you know um i will say it at first, you know, it was it was panic time when everything was shutting down and, and the gigs were just literally every day uh, we would lose some of the gigs. So, you know, we used to do almost 200 dates a year. Now, now we do maybe 120, 125, something like that. We're on the road a little more because of travel time to get to some of the gigs. And... Uh, it was it was just crazy. Our whole income was evaporating. It was like in, like you were watching a, a, some surrealistic TV show or a documentary or something where you know, it would be the the the, the, the calendar shows up and you watch the dates disappear. <laughs> and we have a wonderful booking person, Maria Natal. She's in San Francisco area, and she. Uh, she's just great, and she was you know getting the calls and the emails and. And it was totally understandable. I mean, people, it was not safe to to keep these big events and festivals and what have you, but it was it was a little scary. But then uh, I've been doing, you know, some of the virtual banjo camps and bluegrass camps and still giving some virtual lessons. And uh, and then it was kind of nice being home, actually. I enjoy it. It's great. Um, so... I guess in answer to your question about wanting to get back, I mean, I kind of, yes, I do. I want to get back to playing. I want to play with the band, you know. That's the thing, playing by, by myself here. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's fine, uh, and you learn stuff, and it's all good. But I'm, I'm kind of a band guy, you know. I, I, I really feel much more at home playing in, a, in an ensemble situation. And, uh, and especially with people that you play with regularly and the band gets tighter and it's just wow i love it so we are getting back yes yeah, slowly but surely in fact in the past two weeks all of a sudden as more states are opening up um we filled in quite a few days i think we only have a couple two or three weekends now open between now and uh, october it's pretty amazing all of a sudden you know and a lot of the places were of course festivals or or theaters whatever that that just carried over their bookings um to this year from last year but they didn't know for sure if they were going to be able to do it and some of them knew they were going to be able to open but didn't know if they would be able to have full capacity which means how would the money work you know and, but it's 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 moving along surprisingly very quickly so that's a good thing and I know a yeah. lot of the bands uh, that I talk to, a lot of my friends are, are getting back at it too. So that's good. 
Yeah, it's really good to see festivals, clubs, you know, everything's starting to get rolling again and getting back to back to normal eventually. Yeah, yeah. It's always good. And, and so, many people, so many people are like, uh, I think the good thing about it really was how many, how we all realize how much you miss live music, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that seems to be the thread everywhere, you know. Yes. Yeah. And even with all the virtual stuff, which was great, you know, and people were very happy to at least experience music that was happening now as opposed to uh, recorded, which, and, and again, recorded music's great too, but I think uh, the, that whole thing about live music has, has really now become uh, a, big, a big appreciation when it comes back. So that's great. Yeah. Definitely. Well, talking about... Do you want to play another tune for us? Um, yeah, yes. You know, um, somewhere in here, maybe could one thing I I've had a couple of questions about what how I played and how I did a few things in these different tunings for the songs on the record. Could I take mm-hmm. a couple minutes just to definitely please yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm going right now from. D, I'm tuned to an open D, right? So now I'm going to bring the A up to B on the first and fourth string. So now I am going up to the E tuning, and I think that's what a, a lot of uh, players use uh, on this banjo because it sounds so great in, in E. So I've got B first and fourth string. kind of swingy it's called i hope gabriel likes my music and um it wasn't written by louis armstrong but he he was a big uh, uh featured act here in chicago at some of the huge dance halls and theaters back in the 20s and 30s and 40s and um he used to do this song and uh, so I, I, it, I kept it tuned in d for that and uh, so again it's that's A, F sharp, D, A, F sharp. And for the intro, I just... The thing that's so great about this banjo, then, is this is kind of a jazzy number Thank you. 
was even a part then where I was just strumming. So that's how I recorded uh, I Hope Gabriel Likes My Music. And it's in the detuning and uh, just a lot of the swinging chords uh, in there. Um, maybe real quickly, I'll go now I will go uh, tune it up to E. And so now first and fourth string go up to B. Second string comes up from F sharp to G sharp. I thought I had the tuner set on there, but you know the story about the Keith tuners are great, except for on. And the, then the third string, which is wound by the way, uh, on the Julia Bell, does go up to an E. The tuning again is if you're going from fifth string to the first is what again? From well, the first and fourth string are B. Mm -hmm. The second string is G sharp. Okay. Third string is E, and then the fifth string is E. So there's a song. Robbie Folks wrote for us. He's a Special C alum. And uh, all the songs were kind of about Chicago because it was the 45 year anniversary and we wanted to. So they're either written by people who were lived here or from here. Steve Goodman, and of course, we did City of New Orleans and um, that song, the Louis Armstrong one. That was kind of a stretch, but he was a big figure in Chicago before he became yeah. the big famous guy, you know. Definitely. So anyway. Um, so Robbie wrote this song, and it's uh, it's about Bill Monroe, but it's kind of in the first person. I'd never heard a song written in the first person about Bill Monroe. But so this is in E, but the, that song is in E minor. So you can get a really nice thing. If uh, now in this tuning, the third string is G, which is the flatted third. solo in the beginning okay now another song called Lakeshore Drive which yeah. was a uh, very popular song in Chicago, and actually still is, about the Lakeshore Drive. That was an E, so I, I stayed in the same tuning. I just didn't, you know, when I was playing the uh, 
East Chicago Blues, I just had to make sure not to hit the major. I had to keep hitting the uh, the E note there. Um, I mean the G note. So um, with Lakeshore Drive, um, I'm sorry. I would hit the. There's a part in there that uh, Allison found a tutorial on the piano with the piano played. So and that's the part that people had asked about. So I just Sorry to digress here, uh, but I just wanted to let folks know who had been asking how what what was this? What was that tuning? How did that work? So that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> that Lake George Lake Shore Drive piece. I mean, I, I was listening to it today and 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 listening to the original and uh, and and it's really interesting how you do the keyboard parts on the banjo. Um, yeah, I, uh, well, doesn't it? It does. It lays out so well, especially in in that tuning. You know, be able to play it in E, um, but in G formations, and um, I think. Well, as I said, Allison found this uh, tutorial online. The piano player was showing exactly how he did everything. So I just watched the tutorial, and uh, you know, figured out how he was, how he was making some of those uh, patterns. It was uh, it was fun. And for for those that don't know, that this is on your recording, Chicago Barn Dance, your recording that came out last year. Um, right, right, yeah. Uh, and do you want to tell us a little bit of the story of of, of what the Chicago Barn Dance is? It, for me, I, I live in New Orleans. It reminded me a, a little bit of the Louisiana Hayride. Um, yes, yeah, very yeah, similar yeah. thing. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it uh, it started. Uh, there's a there's still uh, a radio station here, WLS, and that's for world's largest store because it was owned by Sears, Sears Roebuck and Company, and um, they started having uh, country music on on the air waves, and they'd have then live show on Friday nights and or Saturday night, and it uh, it was really popular. This was in the late 20s and 30s, actually. And by the 40s, they, um, they decided to have a, a live show. And so the 12th Street Theater, 12th Avenue Theater here in Chicago, um, they did that. And they brought in, I mean, all the great acts of the time, from Patsy Montana to uh, Roy Rogers and also the Sons of the Pioneers and Gene Autry and... and uh, they had the Monroe brothers started on that show as dancers when they moved over to Indiana uh, around Gary and they worked in the oil refineries and uh, they uh, they would come and dance and then uh, somebody had a miss a show I don't know if it was the Lewin brothers or what the story was I can't remember but they they sang then and then they became regulars as the Monroe brothers uh, singing 
and uh, and they had an old Bell Reed. I mean, they had lots of lots of these great acts coming through, and the place people would stand in line. I mean, in the dead of winter when it gets way below zero, <laughs> they would be waiting just to get in, you know. Um, and there was a guy there uh, named George D. Hay, and he was the announcer, the MC, I should say. And um, he was there for a few years, and then he moved to Nashville. And then he got a job at WSM, and he was working there. Then he became a program director, and eventually decided, you know, we need to have a show like the that, that show they had down there in Chicago. So, uh, so he did, and it was that, that was the Grand Ole Opry. Um, so I think after the 45 years, the history of the the, the band being around, and you know, understandably, people would be like, "How can you play bluegrass music or country music coming from Chicago?" You and uh, so this was just, we wanted people to know, you know, this we have a lot of roots. There's a lot of country roots and bluegrass roots here. Um, and uh, so many people didn't know anything about that, you know. So that's that's where this came from, that whole concept. And uh, and Allison was with uh, uh, Becky Buller and, and Missy Raines for one of their, uh, uh, the, the female stars of bluegrass uh, shows and just said to Becky and Missy, yeah, you know, We've got these songs, but uh, why don't you write a song about it? Just give it a shot. So they did. And that's the title song, Chicago Bar. They did a great job. They obviously spent time researching it because they have all the facts in in that just that song. So it's great. It's fantastic. I love how you know the the, the connection of the dots and how you know it all makes yeah. sense with the 45th anniversary. It really worked out well. Yeah, we were very happy and uh, disappointed, of course, that we couldn't. <laughs> tour with the recording tour the album yeah exactly yeah. so uh, we're hoping to get on the road with that this year anyway so yeah y'all have made a lot of um, recordings through the years how do you come up with the concept you know without just making kind of a generic bluegrass album but really coming up with something that that's you know how do you choose the songs and, and, and whatnot? how do you kind of pull it all together yeah that's a great question man um, well, we always did have the the thought or the concept that, you know, we aren't going to, we shouldn't probably do uh, some of the songs that the people um, who are living these songs, uh, people maybe from down south in the real uh, bluegrass parts of the country, you know. Um, and And when we played the clubs here early on, uh, you kind of, you know, we would throw in some, some old rock and roll songs done, with, you know, the, the bluegrass instrumentation and the vocals, but um, just to uh, keep the uh, audience coming, um, so they could recognize some songs, you know, that they had heard somewhere on the radio or whatever. Uh, so when we put together the recordings, we're always kind of snooping around to get something different, but that could really sound grassy. I mean, I consider us a pretty, pretty traditional sounding band. Um, there was a time when we used to do a little, little funkier stuff, but uh, but I think you know we we just I don't know we just look for good songs, good story songs, and and songs that. Uh, that suit the people in the band at the time, you know, the vocal blend um, and the feel for the music. Now, since we've been with Allison and Gary on Compass, I mean, that's the that's fabulous because Allison 
is such a phenomenal uh, musician and arranger and uh, label owner. I mean, she's just, I can't say enough good things about her, and she's helped us tremendously. So we go in the studio, and now I, we probably spend more time than we should because we're not as prepared. I mean, we keep gathering songs and gathering songs and really talking about it. Now we have some, you know, a lot of our friends that are really good songwriters that have given us songs um, over the years, you know, kind of ask them or tell them, hey, we're, we're going to record, you know, in a few months and if you have any songs or whatever. And, and for themes, I mean, sometimes we don't even have a theme per se when we start uh, recording, but as we start going through the songs... And Allison's perspective is kind of, it, it's great because she takes every song almost like an album. You know, it's like we, we try not to have what you call the filler songs. We try to have every song count and really spend a lot of time on the arrangements with her um, to uh, just make it interesting and make it change. Things change, and so we do a lot of key changes, and um, we have a lot of songs that uh, are just, Originals by some of the people in the band or by by friends who uh, have written them for us. Um, but we're, so we're trying to stay kind of traditional sounding, but with with current present day uh, themes. And uh, you know, now the Chicago Barn Dance one is is one that kind of had that idea as we were gathering the material. But there are others that. Uh, we uh, we just all of a sudden after you have four or five or six songs it's sort of like oh you know this is kind of looking like a theme here with the way these story songs are lining up and um, and then we decide then so and you've written a number of of uh, um, uh, instrumentals as well yeah uh, in your career what would you how would you what would you say what makes a good uh, like banjo instrumental tune, like uh, when when you're when you're messing around and with you know coming up with little licks and ideas, when does it kind of trick you know trigger like this is actually a, a tune? It's not just a little lick or something like that. When's it yeah. kind of seal up? Yeah, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, sometimes it might be the chords. You know, usually, yeah, I get an idea or a thought um, and uh, run with it. I had one one that I wrote a while ago and I've played quite a bit. It's called Danny's Dance, and it's kind of a Celtic kind of thing. But I just, it, it just, I, I, oh, wait. It, it was, I, I started, it was in a dream. I mean, I was just sound asleep, and I woke up with this melody going through my head, and I ran out and grabbed the banjo in the middle of the night and, uh, and it, uh, so the that was the melody that just kept going through my head so so then when I sat and messed with it and this is kind of for me this is this is how these things usually go and then it's like, well, what, what, okay, maybe that could be an A part. What would a B part? And 
and then over time that changes and i know we played it uh in ireland we go to ireland and the uk uh every other year we've been doing that since the nine early 90s and um one of the musicians over there came up and said well you know that b part be really cool if you went to a C there. This is in the key of D. And mm -hmm. He said, "Yeah, you know, get that flat seven. So I tried it, and I thought, wow. and that was it. Now I've recorded it a couple times, once without that C, and later on with that. Um, so." Uh, that's the other part of it. I think things are always getting massaged. You know, I don't think yeah. anything is is a constant necessarily. You know, or somebody might come up with an idea or throw something in on stage, or and then it's like, wow, let's do that. Or, that's how a lot of the rhythmic uh, things, both in the instrumentals and the vocals, uh, in in our band, happen. You know, the bass player and the guitar player will just give each other a look and they'll put a little bump, a little push somewhere. You know, and yeah. Um, and then pretty soon that and the the funny thing is when when then when we have somebody a new person coming in um <laughs> and they go learn the song and they'll, they'll learn it from the recording and then we're shocked you know when we go play it together it's like really that was that's how it was on the recording you know <laughs> it's just morphed so much you know since then and you just don't realize it you know it's just a, a totally. thing yeah so that's, and that's, that's yeah, it's that's one of the great things music. about having a band, you know, is, is you know, a band that sticks together is you can yeah. you can grow these tunes, let them it just doesn't become this, you know, repetitive thing. They kind of grow and you trust each other to add, you know, another spice to it. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. You know, you have this great respect for each other and you're all on the same page because you all love the music and uh, and yes, it's always it's always growing. That's a good thing. Yeah. Your sound, uh, your banjo sound is, I was listening to a lot today, and it is, it's just so, one thing that stands out is just the clarity of, of everything. Can really, no matter what you're doing, you can really, every note seems to come out very clear. It's not just, you know, a, a, a something that your fingers move to, that there's, there's, there's a melodic sense to it. It just, and and the timing is just is just rock rock solid. How would you suggest people kind of get that clarity of play, playing that you have, whether it be well, rhythmic well, or a melodic clarity? Well, that's a huge compliment. Thank you <laughs> for that because that's something that I I really uh, concentrated on all. Of all along, I think, when I was learning, um, and to this day, I think, I mean, if you practice and just start with those roll patterns and then start with the licks and what have you, but I mean, it really is paying attention to te technique from the beginning. And I'm not a great technician, and I can't play all the really, really fancy stuff, that's for sure. But uh, that's what I try to do is just have that sound and listening to Scruggs and Crow. Um, and I talked to Crow about that, uh, J.D., and he was saying, uh, like on the right hand, you know, uh, hit the string in the fat of the pick. And mm -hmm. uh, that meant, you know, and, and you can look at your picks 
and and see if you're doing that because they'll wear right up the middle on the on the metal finger picks. But if you've got a, a little burr on the front edge or something, that means you're. So the difference between that and that is huge, and it's about a billionth of an inch as you turn your finger, you know. So I really then really worked at, uh, you know, finding the sweet spot in front, about an inch in front of the bridge and trying to line my fingers up with the mental image that they're like hitting the string at a 90-degree angle. They aren't really, but I mean, you get that image. The thumb was the hard part for me because the thumb... My thumb bends back, so I had to make sure I was hitting right in the fat of the pick, not on the front edge because I curled it in, or not on the back edge. And and uh, I think all of which is to say, work on that right hand um, to make sure every note is clear and every note is sounding the same with volume. And I mean, unless you're trying not to do that for a particular song, but if you get every song to sound really clear and crisp, and then with the left hand, same thing, you know, all those slides and pull-offs and everything, I used to be uh, bad about not bad about it, but, you know, you get into the uh, playing a fast tune, and sometimes those slides are, but, so then it was like, go, those are two notes, so sometimes I would start and play a tune and play the note. And then make sure I was going from the fret to the fret so I could hear the two notes. And that made a really big difference, you know, um, for everything. The hammer on and the pull-offs. So uh, I just think it, it, it just takes some time and some some. Uh, concentrated effort to uh, to work on those things the tone and and the timing you know metronome for sure uh and i i don't know any of the professional players that don't work with a metronome and just still play with a metronome you know um uh when you're at home playing um and uh i don't know and then that the, the rest of it is the feel for the for the music and of course it helps when you're playing with with really great musicians so I don't know. Yeah. Is that a long-winded answer? <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a terrific answer. Do you do for for you talking about you know hitting the, the um, strings straight on? Do you wear your picks slightly to the side, or you cock your hand a little bit to try to get your finger picks to hit straight, um, or do you use the angle picks or any, anything? Any little trick to kind of do that? Well, my picks kind of hang over my fingertips a little bit number one I, I don't roll them over the tip like Scruggs did because mm -hmm. uh, I, I just I don't know it just helped me play better to have them mm -hmm. a little over the tip and then um, to get that quote 90 degree angle it's it's the wrist um, you know like if you're playing in your, your thumb you know how the thumb pick can sometimes get caught up on a string well I know then that you gotta, I just have to arch my wrist. If we, you know, if we've driven all night, we don't do that anymore, but we did plenty. <laughs> and, and I'm playing, and I'm just like struggling. It's like, wait a second, let's just take a breath, move your wrist, and put a little more arch in the wrist so that it, it, it makes sense doing that. And the same with the left hand, you know, if you're hitting the string, getting that, it's like push the wrist. It's all, it's all, I, I do uh, sometimes a, a class for, for the, uh, 
people just starting out at some of the camps called it's all in the wrist and that's that's really true <laughs> for me for me anyway you know. um, and that gives you that so that quote 90 degree angle with both hands with the left hand coming down right on the string instead of leaning over and with the right hand being able to really have the clarity that when you hit the strings that's good advice um, you, you you're you know you're you mentioned you, you teach at camps you've, you've and we've talked about you teaching at Old Town School. You've been you know, a teacher in many different aspects. You have some DVDs out as well. Um, but what something, you know, a couple of things. When, what's, what's one kind of common thing, no matter how level, something that kind of people kind of, you see a common roadblock on people improving? Is there something and how do they get past it? And then if people are getting discouraged, if they're, how do you kind of, when they're getting frustrated and discouraged, how can you help them, inspire them to kind of keep hmm. going? Jeez, these are great questions, David, man. Uh, I think, um, well, a common thing, I think, is that people, uh, you know, when you really like the sound of the banjo and you really want to play so badly and you start working on it, uh, sometimes some of the things we just talked about, you work on them, but then... I see people trying to play too fast, too soon, you know. And as soon as you start just ripping through something um, without always paying attention to both hands and what you're doing, uh, you can get a little sloppy and, and, and get, and then it doesn't sound real good. And then you, you know, then it's like, well, what am I doing wrong? You know, I, I just practiced for an hour and, and I, it just doesn't sound as good as it should and so on and so forth. So I think. One thing is, just take your time. I mean, it, it, you'd much rather hear somebody playing, you know, really cleanly and clearly, and that sounds musical, as opposed to, you know, any, just... So I think that's something. Just take your time and, and play it slower. Play along with a metronome, and then if you notch it up a notch or two and play it with the metronome and I, you'd be surprised after you just notch up a few notches you're actually playing it uh, faster and and but it's in time and it's clean and i think then at the same time when you're uh, you, you need to just then after your practice time maybe just sit and play a tune just because the reason you're doing this is because you love playing the banjo and you just so relax you know just enjoy it don't be thinking about it Ah, I should have played this lick in there. I should have done that C lick better. I should, you know, just just play, just play and enjoy it. You know? And I think that helps a lot. That's good advice. Very good advice. Um, what about um, and talking a little more about the Old Town School? Um, there's one. Uh, I got a chance to do a, a, a workshop once there on tenor banjo, and it's just. Mm. It was my first, I've always heard, I'd heard about it for years, and it's just a real special place. It's it's kind of a strangely, you know, there's not many places like it in the world. Um, well, what do you feel about it, and and can you say a little bit about the whole town? So, yeah, well, just the whole way it started. Um, uh, Brett Hamilton and Winstrocky and some of the people. I mean, they just love folk music, and they were just people wanted to learn how to how to do that and they were just doing it in living rooms you know and uh and then the whole i think just the whole 
vibe has been really, really good over the years. And now, you know, they've, they've expanded and they have three buildings and they have a pretty large staff and they offer all kinds of, of uh, music. I mean, it's not just folk music and it's not just bluegrass, it's blues, it's everything, even dance, different types of dance, you know. And, but they they stay current, they stay plugged in and they're so well loved by everybody in, in town. You know, the radio stations uh, support them and uh, they do fundraisers and people come out in droves and people just, I don't know, they just don't want to see that place go away, you know. They just had their 50-year anniversary a couple of years ago, and it's it's just a it's just a I don't know a testimony to the 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 live music connect that we all have. When you play that music, you're 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 connecting in the gut level, and and um, I think that's what goes on there, you know. And so people really really love to come and take some lessons, and just it's just the community. It's it's a whole community. Um, of people and, and I think that's it's it's nice to see that when things get crazy in the world that place has been there and they're still there and they're still doing the same thing you know and that's that's nice to know you know yeah so that's why I stay there I I, I just made a point of I just wanted to stay connected so we have, we have one viewer that wrote in and said they went to a workshop uh, uh, by you there um, years ago and you brought in a fourth grader um, who just blew him away and it was Gnome Bukowski. <laughs> yeah, Gnome actually back in the day, uh, I think it might have been the first time I was on the cover of Banjo Newsletter. Gnome lives in, lived in, grow up in Skokie, Illinois, which is a suburb north of Chicago, kind of. Uh, and uh, I lived in Evanston, the neighboring suburb. And so he read. You know, got Banjo Newsletter and read it and said, holy cow, he lives right here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so he called me up and said, you think you could give me a few lessons? And I said, yeah, sure, that would be great, you know. And so his dad brought him over to the house uh, a few times. His dad's great. His parents are great. And, uh, and we would go to the back room and work on stuff. But, you know, I'll tell you, uh, speaking of how people – absorb and create and you could tell i mean i gave him lessons for a while in fact eventually a couple of times he'd ride his bike from his house to my place and he'd just play one of my banjos you know but uh it's a perfect example of how to do it right because when he came to me he already played the scrug stuff so he had it down i mean he had wow. really practiced and he could play great and um and he just wanted the, the, the thing that we were working on was just kind of playing outside of the box. And back then I was doing a little more of that kind of thing. Um, I've gotten more traditional, I think, over the years. Uh, um, but uh, he just, you know, he was great. And I think one time uh, he came over and played a lick, a Bela lick, or played this tune, you know, and I just sat there and listened. And, and he said, hey, is it, I think this is right, is it? I said... Man, I don't know. So show me what you did, and you don't have to come here anymore. <laughs> you know? So it's one of those was, classic stories when, when you know, when when the student starts to teach this teacher. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was like, yeah. oh man, and you just—he was just great. He's a great person, and uh, and you know, he's just such a good person. Uh, 
when he comes to play at the Old Town School every now and then, I mean, he'll send an email message or give a call. Oh, I got, you know, if you want to come, if you're in town, I got, uh, uh, you can come, you, and your, you know, you and Jackie come as my guest, of course, you know, and, and Don Sternberg, so we all sit at the same table every time in the back by the soundboard, you know, and, uh, so it's just great, yeah. That's that's a real success story right there, and the guy who worked at it and who has a talent, so much talent, and who is just a wonderful human being, you know? That's great. You also started um, the TAM, Traditional mm -hmm. American Music. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little about what that was? And, and Yeah, well, um, that was back in the 80s. The 1980s, I better, <laughs> not the 80s. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, well, just a friend of mine was a teacher, and one time just asked me, uh, in, that's when we were really, we'd go away for two or three weeks at a time and come home for four or five days and go back out, you know. And, and she said, you know, we're having this thing on, on music and on country music in my class, and would you come and... It'd be great if, if you wouldn't mind. Could you just come play a couple tunes on the banjo? Because a lot of my kids probably haven't ever seen a banjo. But now they're hearing it, and it'd be neat. So I did. And then another teacher said, well, hey, how about coming to my class? And, you know, And, um, and then uh, Chris Jones was in the band at the time. So a couple times he'd go with me. You know, if we were at home, I mean, hey, we got to play a few tunes together. We just, you know, we were just eating up with it, playing all the time. And... Uh, to make a long story not so long, um, it just became clear that this was a real thing, that kids were interested in it, especially city kids. Um, and so eventually, after doing this more and more, then we'd bring the band. And so I went to the library. This is before Internet, of course, you know. They, so I researched it in the library and just, just gave a little overview from country music to bluegrass music and, and uh, what the instruments were and how they were tuned and how they were played. And, and then we started uh, bringing that program, making that a program to bring into the classroom. So it wasn't really giving music lessons. It was trying to introduce kids to, to bluegrass music. And, um, boy, it, uh, it really took off. I, I had a teacher's guide then that I wrote up, you know, and uh, they would uh, have that before we came to the school. And, and then one of our booking people back then, I mean, we would book schools. You know, if we'd, we'd go into a town that we're playing maybe a small theater or something in town, um, and we'd offer to for just a, a pittance, a few a couple hundred dollars, whatever, during the day to go into a classroom just to, you know, bring the music to that town and that school. And, and, and eventually, God, we were doing lots of schools. We even went to... Uh, we were in Louisville um, when the museum, Gabriel Gay was, uh, Gray was uh, the director, and I think we spent a week there doing like four schools a day, five days, uh, just going into each different school. And it would vary from, from a classroom to a whole gymnasium with the whole school. And, uh, and we just had, you know, talked about the music and played the music. And I, and I have to say, kids were, we even did it in the inner city in Chicago, you know, and, and it was great. I mean, this just trying to show the cultural things that, that are um, here in this city of Chicago. It was, uh, and we still do it sometimes, you know, they had a lot of grant money for that sort of thing for a lot of years, but that's kind of not there anymore.
Um, but sometimes we do it, you know, for a, a non-profit organization or whatever, or school. Well, you've done so much for the music with both playing and teaching, and you've also served on the board of IBMA, the International Bluegrass Music Association, uh, for a number of years. Uh, where do you see the, the state of bluegrass going now um, in the future? Do you see it growing? Do you see it? Um, do you see it? Um, you know, opening to wider you know, wider styles, you know, the kind of the, you know, styles of not just the traditional bluegrass, but, but uh, where, where do we see the direction of bluegrass, I guess? Well, it's definitely changing in some ways. There's still, I know uh, the, the thread for the past 15 years, even through the IBMA has been, you know, worrying about the traditional sound going away as, as the umbrella widens. But uh, I think we're going to be fine because uh, the, the main thing is, I mean, uh, everybody has access via the Internet now, you know, and you can watch YouTube videos, you can take lessons, you can study on your own. Uh, there are all kinds of books and videos and DVDs and all that to learn. And so many of the young people, I mean, they are great players and singers. It's just, it's wonderful, I think. They just... Uh, have uh, grown so much because now they have access to all this stuff. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's definitely growing and changing all the time, but uh, the stuff that's there isn't going away. It's just, you just, now it sounds like this over here, but you still have that over there, you know, and, and the traditional stuff, I mean, there's some great traditional bands now with young, young folks in them, you know? Um, so uh, it's actually a good thing that the music yeah. is expanding and growing, you know, because it'll be here now. That's going to keep it alive, you know, um, and I think it's great. Yeah. Well, you've got fans all, all all around the world uh, just just today watching. You have uh, one fan, Piero Biasi, he's asking, oh. will, will you be back in Bavaria next year for teaching at Bluegrass Camp? And what is the difference between teaching and playing in the U.S. and Europe? Oh well, Piero, he's he's giving me a hard time now. I have to think, <laughs> and I hope I will be back. Yes, we were supposed to be there this year and the year before, um, and assuming they're going to have the camp, I uh, should be back. Yep, and um, I I don't think there's a a huge difference anymore um, with the teaching and the playing here and in other countries uh, and a lot of that because of what I was just talking about because of the internet you know because more yeah. people are aware of it you know when we started going to Europe and and to uh, the mainland Europe countries and England and Ireland um, it was a new thing there and people were just whoa this is great you know but uh, which they still have wonderful you know love going to all those countries because there's a real music scene, a real bluegrass scene in many of those countries now. And uh, there are even people who play bluegrass instruments and play bluegrass music and don't maybe play the, the, the music that they're exposed to from their country. You know, they, so I think because it's, it's more accessible um, now it's, it's, it's pretty common thing everywhere. Um, this music um, for the people that know about it. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we've gone to South America, and, you know, it's, of course, not as well known by any means. But there are people who play it there, and uh, they're good musicians, and they know all about it. And so it, uh, I think it, it, it's growing everywhere. Well, you've definitely helped, helped that a huge amount. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. I mean, I, it's, it's all from the love of the music, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have Shannon O'Hare, who attended, uh, saying she attended one of your classes at the virtual Midwest Banjo Camp, and she's mm-hmm. saying you're an amazing teacher. She's, uh, oh. well, thank a, you. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of people are, are chiming in, uh, uh, you know, saying how much they love your playing. Oh, boy. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Sometimes I just feel like, you know, I'm just this this guy who just loves to play, but I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I appreciate the, that it's, that it's helping people look, have fun and learn. Not just a guy, a Greg Cahill. And that means a lot to a lot of people. So. <laughs> Never forget that. Absolutely. I had a, I had a couple more questions, if you don't mind. Uh, there's, a couple, there's, there's a second chat room uh, over here, uh, and a couple of guys are asking. Uh, uh, <clears throat> one, uh, Martin, is asking, can you ask Greg if he always uses a metal thumb pick, or is he using one for that particular deering? Ah, well, that's a great question. And actually, I know you guys know about this, I'm sure, but this is a blue chip thumb pick. So it does have the metal band, but it's got that super hard material that looks like plastic that actually hits the string. Um, so I use it on, on all the banjos that I play, you know, any banjo. Uh, I just use it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah most, I think most players, right, if you see a metal band, they're, they're normally playing with a plastic tip. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. Very cool. So that's and then, sorry, Michael was asking, he says, I'm watching right now on YouTube. Um, I don't know why he's not watching Deering Live, but he was watching another video. Uh, Greg Cahill, Margarita Breakdown at the Midwest Banjo Camp 2013. Where did the idea for tweaking the tuning knobs keys while playing come from? I think he's referring to just the, the detuning, like Scruggs style, right? Right, right. And that's where it came from, was Scruggs. Yeah. Um, so, so when, when Earl did it, he uh, did it in the context of the, you know, Flint Hill Special was where I had the idea. But what I did with Margaret's Breakdown was try to keep a roll going through it. So instead of like, I would, uh, this is going to go horribly out of tune when I do this, but just to demonstrate, uh, I would go to the B part. And, So I kept playing the role, and I used those uh, uh, kind of, well, it wasn't reverse order, but it was just. It was just kind of a, I don't know, I, I was just having fun. <laughs> Sometimes we'd get into more of that. all kinds of timing things and it was just a fun tune it was just i just was having fun <laughs> do you, you do you have d tuners fitted to your julia bell or no uh yeah i do 
I do. Yeah, otherwise I was going to be really impressed because that was super accurate. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, I don't. I don't. I mean, I was confused. I was confused. Very good, very good. Um, Joseph Brusk, our uh, regular here, um, he asks, um, Steve Martin once commented that banjo players tend to be really smart people. He meant that they had a broader appreciation of how things work. Uh, as a banjo teacher, have you found this to be true? That's a pretty deep question for a Thursday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think... Um, I think uh, the the people who are really determined to, to to play the banjo, you know, I mean, like really, like I really want to do this, and that uh, it's it's not a thing that th- this is a better attitude than another at all. It's just some people want to play a few tunes and enjoy. Some people want to uh, really learn how to play a, a lot of tunes or be able to sing and play and what have you. But I think the people who are really serious about it. Um, are pretty meticulous about how they learn and really paying attention to the some of the things I was talking about before. You know, it's 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 not just like okay, I'm gonna play. It's like is this a good hand position? Is this am I doing this right? You know, stuff like that. So uh, I don't know. I don't know if that really answers the question, but uh, <laughs> I think yeah. Like with anything else, you know, there are degrees of how involved and interested you are with with what you're doing. Yeah, I was, I was talking to Jonathan, who's uh, in in the backstage area. We were chatting uh, just a second ago, complimenting you on your uh, just philosophy and, and the way you kind of approaching things. I think you were talking about practice at the time and, and the idea of practicing slow to play fast. And um, I, I did. I mentioned to him. I, I find overall banjo players to be far more kind of thoughtful, I guess, mm. about their yeah. approach to certain things like this. Um, so to just add to what you were saying, I think I, I probably agree. Uh, to uh, what Joseph was saying there as well. Um, do you have time for one more? Got one more question? Sure. Yeah. This is going to be, here we go. This is the big one. <laughs> Eric, Eric Hutchins. <laughs> Hi, Greg. When you play a melodic fragment, are you thinking notes or position and roll direction or pattern? Or is it muscle memory? What are your mental cues on the banjo? Hmm. Anna. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, all of the above yeah no I think um, one thing I usually emphasize for for people when they're trying to especially once they've learned the tunes and they're moving up forward you know with their knowledge and and abilities to play um, is start really thinking about even just how many measures are you playing here at, at this part of a song. How many measures of D did you play? Two measures, okay. How many measures of G or, or C or F sharp, whatever. And so what I'm thinking is, you know, I just, after a while, when you start playing these licks that you like um, and appreciate, you know how much space they fill. So when I'm playing and improvising or putting in a melodic thing, I, it's not muscle memory per se. I mean, it, it's it's more... Just thinking about, I'm, I'm filling two measures here. So, I know I can do that with with something like that. And it might not even be the same. I can change it around. But that's what I'm thinking, is how much space am I uh, filling? And then, where am I starting and where am I going? Where am I trying to end up? That's the other thing, you know. Uh, 
and that's a big part of it. So, you know, am I going to end on the one? Am I going to end on the five? Am I going to end on the whatever, the flat three, you know? Um, so I think it's a combination of all of that. And it sounds like a lot, but it's not. If you start looking at your your things, uh, tunes and whatever you're learning and, and just thinking about, you know, how many measures am I playing of D right here? So yeah. that now I know that I really like that lick in D, and now I know I can put that in Roll of My Sweet Baby's Arms in the middle because there's two measures of D there, and that lick would sound really cool there, you know. Um, if that that makes sense, I don't know. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally okay. makes sense. Uh, I hope that answers your question, Eric. That's uh, it's such great advice you've been you've been sharing with us today. We really appreciate it, and uh, couldn't have asked for a, for a better Thursday. I think. Uh, well, I think that's a, that's a really good place to kind of uh, bring it to a, to an end. Uh, we've been going an hour and 20. But, Greg, is, are there any kind of final thoughts, uh, anything you want to share before we before we part ways today? Um, no, I just think, uh, you know, uh, for the folks who, who play and are learning, just uh, enjoy it, you know, and, and have fun and, and, and be serious about the learning but also – about making sure you're having fun. Don't get too stressed out about it, and then don't get down on yourself if you can't do something. And don't, you know, another thing we do, you hear a really great player, and you go back and you try to play those licks, and you get them note for note, but it doesn't sound the same. Well, that's another thing J.D. would say. You know, it's not going to sound the way he played it because he's mm -hmm. been playing a whole lot longer and a whole lot more. And, you know, so just appreciate what you're doing. And, um, and then the other thing I would say is, support the Deering Banjo Company because you folks are all great, really. I know all of the, so many of the people there from Greg and Janet to Jamie to you guys to, you know, and and that's a big thing too, you know, because you're always very helpful. I, I've had a lot of people who have uh, gone to you with questions and what, what kind of banjo should I buy and what should I do. I actually carried around a good time banjo to some of those schools. When I when I was starting, cool. and, and I and I would just say, look, you can play one of these, and it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. And then some schools would actually buy a few, you know, or five or whatever uh, for some of the music classes. So, I think you all do good things too. Uh, great. We appreciate that from somebody like yourself. We we we're trying. This is what we do. So we thank you for your support and thank you for uh, for those kind words for sure. So. David, anything else you want to share the love or are you good? This was, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for, thanks for being here, Greg. And uh, yeah, it was well, great, great hanging out and chatting and listening to you play and everything. Well, I'm honored that you even asked me to be here. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No kidding. Great. We will thanks. do it again soon. Absolutely. Um, I believe we have a week off next week, Dave. I think that's correct. But uh, we'll be back. Keep, uh, stay tuned to your emails. Um, and in the meantime, everybody, please stay safe. Greg, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you to producer Jonathan in the back. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Adios.